This. This is, this is diversified, diversified, diversified game, game, game. game. A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kelly. He may agree, he may oppose, and it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. So, let the game begin. Hey, it's Kellen, and today you guys are in for a treat. I have a real hero. I know I have physicians on here at times. I have best-selling authors who've done amazing things. But when you have somebody who's on the front lines at all times, not just during lockdown and COVID and pandemics, I'm talking about a real hero, Ricky Atkins. He's a hope dealer. A real-life hope dealer, not a drug dealer, not a coke dealer, but he's delivering hope, and he doesn't have an album that I know of yet, and he's not trying to sell merch at the end of the day. So and you guys get what I'm, I'm saying. But Inner City Innovators, Ricky, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to it for a while. And uh, like I said, man, I love uh, getting to share the heart behind uh, why I do what I do. So I'd like to thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. And I thank you. And some folks might be confused. Say, Kellen, you talk about business. Don't worry. We'll get there. Heroes have business, too. We might show you how to be a hero is my hope and give you some hope. But, Ricky, can you give, you know, the people... Um, some background on your story because it's so amazing and it will come better if you tell it than me yeah. bits and pieces. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the whole hope deal thing is a play on words because when I was growing up, the only uh, role models we had in our community were the guys standing on those street corners. And I tell people all the time, oftentimes uh, children are going to be what they see and that which they're most exposed to. And that was kind of like my journey into this world. Uh, my mother struggled with crack addiction around the time of my birth. Uh, so I was raised by my grandmother. And my grandmother had seven children, and all of her children struggled with uh, drug addiction and alcoholism. And uh, I'm the third of my mom's four boys. Uh, both of my older brothers would drop out to pursue uh, drug dealing. So for me growing up uh, and seeing my family uh, really devastated by the crack epidemic uh, and, and poverty, uh, my, I felt like my, my lanes uh, were very limited early on. You know, I can remember uh, even as early as third grade uh, being labeled emotionally handicapped and slow learning disabled. So I kind of, um, as I got to middle school, I started surrounding myself with uh, young men who were from my community, guys that I could relate to, guys that I uh, knew, understood kind of where I was coming from in life. And uh, that's when that path uh down the road to delinquency became kind of more refined. You know, it started out, you're just stealing out of the corner store after school to provide something to eat. Uh, to a few years later, you're dabbling in the drug trades uh, and you and your friends are uh, taking part in things that, that are costing people their lives. So, um, you know, my, my life um, was really headed down a, a place uh, of destruction. And I was really fortunate to have mentors uh, come into my life in the form of godparents, uh, pastors, Bible study leaders, uh, mentors, uh, barbers, uh, just a, a lot of people who kind of saw the, the, the gift in me or, or they saw a calling in me. They, they saw something in me uh, where they, they continued to speak that uh, into my heart. And uh, after a few years, I, I began to, to listen and believe that voice and having some lucky bounces come my way. I was eventually... 
uh, at the age of, I think I was around 17 years old uh, when I completely dropped out of school. I had been expelled uh, by the end of my eighth grade year. So I never really was as engaged in school as I should have been. And uh, I remember it was, it was beginning of my 11th grade year that I completely um, stopped going to, uh, to kind of dabble into drugs full time. And um, I remember I had this experience. My mom was, um, her drug addiction at, it had really gotten the best of it where we, we found ourselves living in a situation um, that, 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 you know, we we're always poor, but I had never remembered us being this poor. And uh, basically we found ourselves living inside of a shed behind an abandoned house. And I remember I came home to that shed one night and uh, it's as if I had an epiphany, you know, I realized that if, if I didn't begin to take the advice of all these people I had speaking into my life, uh, I, I was going to end up dead like many of my friends up to that point or in prison like my uh, older brothers. And uh, that's when things really began to take a turn for me. I started taking advantage of those voices and the opportunities that they were presenting. And I eventually would get my GED. Uh, then I would go on to uh, graduate from EMT school to become an emergency medical technician because I thought I wanted to become a fireman. And um, after graduating from EMT school, like I believe a lot of the lies that I kind of believed about myself uh, kind of shredded away, you know, because I, I never felt as adequate. I never sm I felt as smart as other people. And I felt like uh, completing that milestone uh, gave me a, a belief in myself and I, that I didn't have before. And uh, by the time I got to this point, um, you know, I'm looking around and many of my friends weren't making the same strides in their life. You know, their lives were continually continuing to be given over to uh, incarceration and death and things like that. So seeing that I was uh, fortunate enough to, to escape a path that would have consumed me to be on one that was bringing hope and healing to my own life uh, and my family. You know, my mom ended up cleaning her life up and going to rehab. She's been clean over 10 years now. Uh, my little brother had uh, went to college, uh, played Division One basketball at University of Cincinnati, and uh, now plays professional basketball in Brazil. Uh, my older brothers came home from prison and left the drug trade alone. And every person born after me uh, is either finished high school or, or is in college now, you know, and it all started when I, when I began to shift in my life and speaking that into the people who came up after me. So I, be, I began seeing this shift in my family. And, you know, I, I always ask the question, you know, if this could happen for me and my family, and I consider my family to be one of the worst situations you could grow up in, why can't it happen for my peers? And I, I remember uh, kind of forsaking my pursuit of becoming a fireman and, and going on staff at an organization in my community that worked with youth uh, that came from the situation that I came from. And that's where I kind of really got the heart uh, behind the work that I do now was working uh, with those kids, working in the community that I grew up in and realizing that uh, I could be what I never had uh, to the kids coming up behind me. And uh, that was kind of the inception. You know, everything I do today uh, was kind of conceived uh, through my life experiences and, and my desire to see better uh, in communities like mine, not only here, but all around the country. Okay, and that's awesome, awesome. And, and, and what a beautiful turnaround for, for everybody. And I think that turnaround, you know, even I know, I found out um, my late 30s, you know, a few months ago, that I had dyslexia and I always struggled, but people would, you know, they laugh at you 
when you're in yep. school and, and sometimes they beat you, you know, yep. <laughs> when you're not doing yep. good in school. And then, um, and I was in one of those families, my mom wasn't letting anybody do a test on me. And, right. and Pops would not have been able to convince her at all. He's yeah. all right. Because they try to do that to majority yep. of And I've, I've worked in the school system, so you know, I've been a supervisor at a psych hospital for a program, work in the group homes and the, the, re, the rehabs like Phoenix Academy. And yeah. like our, once they find that there may be a little something, you know, you think different is what I call it. They right. try to label you and that's right. where the problem starts. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. yeah. That turnaround I, for you though, that's not an easy thing because Okay, you can be bad. You can be good at being bad. But then when right. you turned around, now people right. are <laughs> giving you the same type of pressure. How did you do right. that turnaround and tell the people what did you have to do? Did you have to separate yourself from your family at a time to do that? What happened? Uh, I would say the biggest thing for me that I always somehow forget when I'm going through my story, it was my faith. My faith in God was the, the thing that really got me through because it created uh, – I say it gave me the, uh, the the mental programming to realize that I need to separate myself from certain people and situations and the, and the focus on myself. So that kind of gave me the language uh, that I didn't have for it and kind of the faith to, to follow through. So it, it was that. And um and it was the, the organization that I started working at, you know, it was the, the more time I spent around them outside of my community, uh, the less time I was spending around my friends uh, and, and doing unproductive things. So I think it was my faith and, and it was people, the people that I was surrounded with, man, because it really was one of those things that um, like my entire life, life only worked one way, you know, and it was the survival mentality. You know, it was the struggle. It was getting by. You know, I can't really tell you times and when I was growing up that the lights and the water were on consistently at the same time. You either had lights or you had water. You know, um, you never had the consistency of having a meal. So you're always in survival mode. So I'm spending time with these people who, who weren't from where I was from, you know, and they lived life differently. They looked at things differently. And uh, I think that began to kind of open my mind to like, you mean to tell me I don't have to um, to, to sell dope, uh, to find significance in the eyes of, uh, eyes of people around me? Because when I was growing up, you know, you, you get this, like when you grow, I grew up without my father. So I had this... Um, this, this hole in my heart, you know, where, I, where I, as I look back, I realized a lot of the things that I was uh, taking part in was to get accepted, to, to get uh, affirmed, uh, and, to, and to have people approve of me. And uh, it, it really uh, wasn't until I, I got around these people, and they, they kind of really believed in me before I believed in myself. And it was that time, man, outside of my community and seeing other things, man. I, I've had the opportunity to, uh, to go to Haiti on a mission trip, uh, which, which blew my mind. I got to go over to Uganda and Kenya. Uh, and I just, I just was able to have these experiences, man, that, that a lot of my peers didn't have, man. So I think the, the people, my faith, the travel, it's, just, it's really to the, the seeing that there is a world outside of the bubble that you live in. You know, I feel like a lot of people, when they look at uh, people who grow up in communities like mine, they make swift judgments, you know, based on, oh, if I was there, I'd just be doing this, this, and this. 
and you don't realize if you were there, you'd be conditioned the same way they are, and you wouldn't even have the, the words to describe how you react in those situations the way you do now. So um, th those are the things I feel like really um, planted to see the seeds for me to kind of make those transitions. People will never, if you haven't been in the shoes that you don't know, and it's so easy to be able to judge. And, you know, you said some magic words when you talked about Africa. Um, you're talking to Mr. Africa. Yeah. So we're going <laughs> to talk about that. All right. Yeah, but people won't understand, um, and even my wife, I've known her 18 years, and we've been married 12. She, She's from Africa, from Cameroon, and she mm. will, you know, when she met me, she's like, why are y'all all so violent? I said, you right. <laughs> you're right. I said, especially 80s coming up, and I would go, I'm from Oakland, but then move to the suburbs, Yeah, right on both sides, because yeah. you talk funny. <laughs> other place you look funny you know yep. and, and, yep. and, I, and these hands get thrown well and we train for this <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> this is what we we did so yeah talk about um any city inner city innovators and i want to get to the nitty-gritty how did yeah. you start that because working for organizations and then saying you know yeah. what i think i can add a better a, another service or a better service right. But right. you need dinero. So talk about how did you start and find funding to do that? Right. Absolutely. Well, the first thing is the organization that I had got my start with was a predominantly white organization. Uh, and I would share my story a lot. And, and I saw the reactions that people would give. Basically, my story uh, brought in a lot of money for this organization. And uh, as I continued in the work, and I went from that organization to another youth serving organization. I always saw a disconnect between the work that was being done and what, what really needed to be happening on the grassroots level. So it was always in my mind, like, all right, these people are coming into our communities and they're starting these organizations and doing all this work. And you, 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 you look at the people who need the work most and you see them slipping through the gaps. So I think I had begun seeing that early on, uh, not 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 knowing, but I'll fast forward to, I think it was around the summer of, it was definitely the summer of 2015. And uh, it was one of the deadliest uh, years on record uh, here in West Palm. We had over a hundred plus murders and most of them happened in the community I grew up in, the Tamron Corridor. And Tamron is uh, less than a two mile radius of a community. Yet you had uh, uh, all of these murders taking place uh, in this area. It's a predominantly black area. It's the inner city. And uh, I remember one day, my cousin and I, uh, were, were, we were at his house, and every day we're watching the news, and there's somebody that we knew getting killed or, or killing someone. And it's just like, we knew what was happening. Like, we were younger. Like, we, we partook in it. You know, multiple times, me and my friends were out at parties. We get in a fight with guys. Guys run off, get a gun, and they shoot us off. You know, luckily, I've never been shot, but I got many friends uh, that have come close to losing their lives, and some are even gone, dead and gone today. But, like, we, we knew how these things were happening and why they were happening. But every time you watch the news and you see city leaders uh, claiming to want to do something about it, it's the same, oh, oh, we're going we're gonna to do this and we're going to do that. And I'm like, they, they have no true connection to what, like, how could you even begin to do anything 
when you don't know what's going on, you know? And uh and that that was kind of like our 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 it was like, man, like we're here, we know what's going on. How about we start providing that perspective? How about we start going to these meetings? So we really, man, just started showing up to city commission meetings and community forums. And it, it was just us at first, and then we started uh, organizing some of the young men we work with. And we just show up, and uh, we provide our perspective on why the violence was happening. You know, we, we give our, our, our experiences growing up in the community and, and letting the outsiders know how the community works and really kind of helping them to kind of inform their uh, practices uh, for peacekeeping in the community. And um, after one particular uh, community forum in general, because our only aim is we're just going to go provide this voice. You know, we were both working, had different things going on. We just want to provide this perspective. And, and that was that was it. And uh, a week and a half after one community forum in particular, uh, one of the young men I was with, uh, I was always kind of the spokesman of the group. And um, I remember afterwards, a news reporter came up and she's like, hey, we want to learn more about your little group and uh, like your efforts in the community. And I was like, all right. So we ended up going back and doing a news interview or whatnot and kind of highlighting what was going on in the community and what we were doing about it. And less than a week later, a young man that, that was with me that I mentored, he was gunned down walking home from the store with a group of his friends. And his name was Johnny Davis. And here was a young man that, I, that, I, that, that was young. You know, he was a recent high school graduate, uh, was contemplating going into the military. And uh, he, he was a, a new father. And here he was with us trying to use his voice to, to, to reduce the violence. And less than a week later, he was killed. And um, that was the, the, the straw that, that kind of, that was the last straw for me, where I realized that peacekeeping couldn't be a part-time effort where the, the, the city officials are only getting involved when, when things are heated up or nonprofits are coming around when they think there's a funding opportunity. I realized that the work needed to be done and it needed to be done now. And that's where we got our start. Like we, we, like I had no intention of becoming a nonprofit organization. My intention was just to, to stop my young brothers from dying. So we started out with community engagement walks, uh, just walking up, talking to our brothers, uh, warning them that, about the impact that the violence is happening. Uh, we organized peace marches, candlelight vigils for families who lost people. And I made it my mission that every young black man that lost his life in our community had a name and had a story because it was getting to the point where this was just an expect, oh, this person died, that person died. And we, we kept like bringing this uh, and drawing this attention to what was happening. And things just kind of grew from there to we started forming a partnership with our local governments, the gov government to create jobs programs specifically geared towards the young men most likely to perpetrate and be victimized by gun violence. So it all just kind of started out like my experience in the nonprofit realm, realizing that, hey, if my story was good enough in the past, uh, to be used to bring in funds for these other organizations. I can use my own speaking ability and gift uh, to bring attention to, to these issues that are hurting my community the most. And kind of things just aligning in a way where <laughs> here I am a few years later and, and we're a nonprofit. And I'll let you uh, kind of dig into that as you uh, see fit. Okay. And, and so when you say, okay, I want to start the nonprofit or I want to start and I want to do these things, 
is the first money that you go after, is it like the government RFPs that you go after? Or is it, you know, inside the community and say, hey, this business owner, this business owner, and, and what does that structure look like? Got you. Well, how it worked for us, uh, it was very interesting. Um, it, it was very interesting how it worked for us. So we're just doing the work, no funding, uh, not even thinking about funding. And uh, I meet a guy, and he's like, hey, man, my, like, he's one of my good friends, Tom. Tom comes along and like, hey, if you really want to start gardening the support you need, you should probably incorporate. And uh, he helped us get incorporated. So now we're just nickel and diamond, you know, raising in just enough to, 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 to help us with our outreach. And uh, because of our work uh, kind of preceded us for so long and we became known for our peacekeeping efforts, uh, I attended a meeting uh, with a, a friend of mine that I met at a conference a while ago. He had another gentleman with him and the guy kind of, I gave him, the, you know, the story about how our work started and what we were trying to do. And he, he had me apply at a foundation uh, that he worked at. And that was the first grant that we had gotten. Um, it was through a trust in uh, North Carolina, uh, the Keenan family. Uh, so they were the first uh, foundation to trust us enough. And, you know, I faced all kinds of barriers uh, as an executive director and a founder, uh, being that, you know, I didn't go to school for what I'm doing. You know, I'm a high school dropout, ex-drug dealer, uh, you know, from the hood trying to bring good to it. So I faced a lot of barriers that most traditional people uh, nonprofits wouldn't face uh, on the pathway to funding, but this foundation was the first to really trust us. So they, they uh, graced us with an $80,000 grant, uh, which covered my salary for the first two years, 40,000 a year. Uh, and then there was another uh, foundation that uh, heard about me uh, through, through the network. And uh, they came and they had a gun violence prevention grant where they were trying to find organ. They realized that our method of community transformation uh, is the path forward, you know, because as I kind of touched on earlier, what you often had in the past is uh, a white well-to-do guy comes into the black community, sees some things that wrong that are wrong. He starts an organization and he can go into his network to garner the funds needed to, to make that impact. But it's not at the, the impact doesn't translate as much because the people can't really relate to that, that agent of change. So what these uh, nonprofits were beginning, well, these foundations were beginning to see that if you have people that are from these situations that people respect and relate to, and they're the primary, primary change agents, uh, that's the best way to get peace into these communities. And so that, that, that second uh, uh, foundation that blessed us was uh, Every Town for Gun Safety. And uh, that was a $100,000 grant. And um, so though, and then I had a, a friend of mine that was connected to the Jewish Federation of Palm Beach County uh, that was very interested and supportive of our work. And uh, he stroked a check for $100,000 to uh, get us through. So it really, we, it's been unique because I'm not that, uh, I'm not that talented of a grant writer as of yet. So most of the support uh, we've garnered so far uh, has been through agencies and foundations uh, kind of realizing our niche uh, and, and, and approaching us with opportunities. But, you know, now we're in our fourth year and now I'm really having to apply and look at those government grants and things like that, especially if I'm looking uh, for long-term sustainability funding rise. And I want to tell the people, when you hear these numbers, think about that. Ricky is right there on the streets, um, life at risk on the same streets that he, he survived and working with different organizations, I'm a consultant, so I've seen yeah. so many different projects and work with 
you know, people who have, they were like, one of my friends, he said, Kellen, we're, we're 40 deep in our organization. Every time we move to a city, they change the rules. He's like, mm-hmm. but we were coming to, you know, meetings in Mercedes and they were coming to meetings in Bentleys. I've worked mm-hmm. and had government projects and I'm like, whoa, there's this much money to get so many volunteers and there's money there. But right. the people who have actually been through the struggle, no one's there for the money. You're there because one, you, you kind of need that energy around you. Right. You, you know, stay balanced and yep. you're in the hood anyway, you might as well bring some good to it. Right. Um, but that I, I love that, that that's, you know, thank you for the transparency because somebody wants to start out there but they didn't know how until right, right. there. And right. that's how you start by just doing. And then it's like a domino effect once you connect with yep. the people. So your organization, um, you know, the, the jobs programs you mentioned, what other services do you um, offer and provide the community? Right. So our three uh, primary uh programs uh, of our, is our Hope Dealer Mentoring, which I got to <laughs> represent with this shirt. Uh, our Hope Dealer Mentoring program is focused on social emotional learning uh, and leadership development and community service. And we focus on social emotional learning because I realized that you really have to teach young people growing up in communities of concentrated disadvantage how to process their environments in ways that aren't self-destructive. You know, when you're when you're growing up, like this was a constant struggle I had. Like growing up, uh, my mom, you know, there were times in her life where she was literally uh, choosing her addiction over over caring for my 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 sibling and I, and um, that's frustrating, man. Like so, you you take on this pressure at 15, 16 years old, where you feel like you got to go out and make something happen. You don't really have the supports uh, to and the networks to to process your life. And uh, so that's what we really focus on, man. Many of the young men that we work with are coming from single-parent homes, uh, very dysfunctional situations. And uh, our, and let me tell you how our Hope Dealer Mentoring uh, sessions look. It's a hybrid mentoring program, so we combine individual, group, and peer-to-peer mentoring. Now, our one-on-one mentoring is focused on uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, getting them to, to, to see unproductive thought patterns, its impact on their feelings, emotions, and their actions uh, in hopes that they'll be able to kind of uh, see them things on their own, you know. And our second is our peer-to-peer mentoring where the guys are just hanging out and uh, kind of keeping this positive peer pressure going that we create in our group mentoring dynamic. Now, our group mentoring dynamic, uh, we call it the circle. And we got about 30 young men in our program, and uh, we all sit in the circle. We get the chairs, and, and we line the room in a huge circle. And uh, I'll do a deep breathing exercise to bring everybody into a space. That circle is a very sacred time for the young men. They know that the time in that circle is separated from our time before what happened at home. We're entering into a space where we're going to respect ourselves we're going to respect each other and uh we're going to open up and we're going to be vulnerable and uh once we've uh come into that circle time i'll bring up a topic like trauma uh ptsd or something that the young men are dealing with and we'll just go around and we'll break it open and we'll talk about those things there are no uh wrong answers it's just really getting them uh comfortable with the idea of processing their emotions and sharing what and how their feelings and uh, you know, man, like the like the 
I'd love to get one of my young men on here in the future if we could ever do this again. But like hearing these guys come back, like even when the coronavirus thing happened and we weren't able to meet in person, you know, you got guys calling me like, yeah, man, it's crazy. Uh, I feel like I need to meet with the group. I've been going through some things and I feel like I've been bottling it up. And like that, that bottling up sometimes is what like you, you want to know why, why young men are so quick to pick up a gun and solve their disputes with a firearm. It's because they don't know how to, there's so much pent up rage and anger, you know, from the, the picked on, being bullied, seeing mom struggle to abuse. And you can only tolerate that, that stuff being pent up for so long. So you're seeing these young men like, like, like process and they, they just become different people. And like, like I said, we got 30 young men in our program. 40% of the young men in our program have been shot before. They've had a bullet pierce their skin. Not one of those young men have gone back to, to reoffend or to shoot or be involved with gun violence again. And I'm telling you, I think it has a lot to do with uh, helping them process their emotions and my team and I being available. You know, like I don't believe in, in drawing a line that, and, and I believe that whatever these young men need, whether that's a father figure, a big brother, a mentor, my team and I need to be there uh, to, to, to be, be that for them. You know, we're only a team of three. I only got three staff, my executive assistant, uh, my program coordinator and myself. And we know that, like, if we want to have the impact that we need to have, we need to be available to these young men at all times. So it's it's not uh, it's not uh, out of the ordinary for me to get a call at 12 a.m. or 2 a.m. or or from a parent and and her son's doing something, and I got to go and meet that need. So our Hope Dealer Mentoring Program is kind of like the the shell that keeps all these young men uh, a part of something bigger than themselves, you know. And uh, that, that's my baby, the Hope Dealer Mentoring Program. Uh, second is our community engagement walks and activities. And that's where we simply get out, uh, we walk the streets, and we try to recruit young men from the community into our programs. Uh, that's where we rub shoulders with the older guys, the drug dealers on the corners. And we have to have a relationship with them because you, you, we've reached a point where, like, when I was growing up, I couldn't sell drugs around anyone that knew my big brothers because my big brothers made it clear they didn't want me selling drugs. Like they, they, we kind of lost that standard where now these guys on the corners are kind of inviting the kids into that life. So we go to these guys and say, hey, like send them to us. You know, you see the misery that this lifestyle has brought you. Let's create a different way for these young men. And even the drug dealers that have worked with us to, to send young men to our directions, they eventually get caught for something. And they call me, hey, man, like, could you come speak at my sentencing hearing? And I go and I say, Your Honor, I know this man did what he did, and he's going to have to pay the consequences for that. But let me tell you how he's kind of helped me and my work and keeping young men from making those same decisions. So it kind of helps me maintain that street level support that I need to, uh, to, to make sure we're successful in doing our job because you, you cannot do the kind of work we do uh, without street level support, you know, you, you just can't. And um, another uh, program we got is our anti-violence workshop uh, where we go into schools, community centers, churches, any uh, youth serving organization uh, with the aim of facilitating a workshop with their young people, teaching them how to stay safe in their communities. And SAFE is an acronym we use. Uh, the S is for be smart about who you surround yourself with. 
Uh, A is for be alert to your surroundings at all time. F is for be fearless about getting yourself out of situations that could cost you your life or your freedom. And the E is for be an example of what it takes to stay safe in your community. And we try to get this message into them while they're young, elementary school, uh, so that as they're older, uh, they, they know what peer pressure is, what it looks like, and how susceptible they are growing up in a community like the one they uh, live in. And uh, lastly, uh, we do something called, um, we call it violence response or, or shooting response, where every time there's a youth involved uh, shooting in our community, uh, we get a text message. You know, the same dispatch that goes to EMS, we get that to our phones and uh, we respond to those shootings to kind of gather information if there's youth involved and see if we can make a connection with the family. And uh, oftentimes uh, we, we do uh, candlelight visuals. Uh, we, we help uh, bring media attention to the loss of life uh, and, and really uh, help control the narrative that this isn't just another life, that that murder isn't uh, a normal thing or an accepted thing in our community. So those are those are uh, the different programs we do, and everything that we do is created so that the young men in our mentoring program could do it themselves. It's my philosophy that real change happens when the people who need it lead it. So once the young men have gone through our uh, Hope Dealer mentoring program, the leadership development model, they'll be trained uh, to do community engagement walks in the community to reach out to their peers. They'll be trained in doing these anti-violence workshops uh, to elementary age kids. They'll be trained uh, to, 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 to do everything that we do, you know, because my dream is that in the next 10 years, I won't be leading this organization. It'll be one of my uh, mentees that I'm working with now and training them in the work. And that's what it has to be. You know, this has to be something that's led uh, for youth and by the youth that are most impacted by these things or it eventually loses its power. Man, uh, I just I want to applaud you for not being like some of our elders and saying, I'm going to stay in this position until the day that I die. Go even globally. Yeah. We see even, you know, African yeah. presidents, they want to die in the office. And it's like right. some of this work. Yeah. Like you said has to be done by young people because they have the pulse, they have the yep. lingo, they have the thought process. Exactly. The things that you can do, like, you know, you'll be successful in something else. And right. that's a beautiful thing. You know, I love that you connected with, uh, you know, the emergency response unit. Was that a difficult thing to do? I know a, a, a nonprofit that did that in Massachusetts, and um, it wasn't as difficult as many people think. Right. I had a, a friend of mine who worked in dispatch and uh, he created an app uh, where so I don't even have to work directly uh, with uh, emergency responders. Um, I'll get the text and I'll show up with them. But our city just created a new program uh, called uh, Recap. Uh, and the recap program, you know, we get these badges. So now, you know, I get my text alert through my friend who created this app and I show up and I'm able to show police officials my badge uh, and they could give me access to the family and things of that nature. Uh, so it, it is something that's constantly in development. But I think uh, just having friends that, that, that kind of had the wherewithal to, to, to see the kind of support I needed and, uh, and provided it. 
Okay, and is that app, is that a, um, just for your organization or is that something that people can download? We like to give folks. I could, time. yeah, I could definitely uh, find out and make, I'm not sure if it's a, a local thing, but I could find out and get you that information that you can share with the audience because I told my friend it should be something that's happening nationally, especially with people doing the kind of work I'm doing. Yeah, and I want to, I want to make sure, you know, that people know, but also I'm going to go business and folks, you got to understand that community activism, it it takes money. So you have to have a business hat. But one thing that I learned at an organization, what was happening with um, some friends of mine was when they would go to their city, to a, a new city and because they were new and they're like, who are all these, you know, black folks and they, they get three or four houses and, you know, yeah, got a boxing coach who's a professional boxing coach yeah come clean up the streets um one are they drug dealers themselves that's the the thing because you know right suited ties and i'm sure yeah deal with that even the way you present yourself oh right you know still connected but yeah two um the money what they found out is they did not know that what they were doing that they could kind of franchise and that was intellectual property. So yeah, yeah you pick a side of the city, but you are right. gonna pay us for our program with right. and yeah. most people that you know you, you don't hear about that stuff like what you can franchise that? Have you dealt yeah. with any of that? Uh not yet, not yet. And that's the thing I'm kind of uh building out right now because my model is a little different in the sense that I don't want to, because we do want to expand, you know, my my dream, well, my vision in the next uh, 10 years is to have a a hope dealer click uh, in every uh, inner city throughout Palm Beach County, you know, and the way I plan on doing that is not through me and my team going into these communities and trying to create change, but basically identifying myself in each of those communities. Uh, There's gonna be someone with a similar mindset and disposition that I could go in and kind of mentor in the philosophy and the game plan and funnel them the tools and resources they need uh, to recruit like-minded individuals and to begin to work on that level. Because where I have the social capital in my community, because my older brothers were neighborhood drug dealers, so the respect that they got kind of came to me uh, and all of their network became my network as far as uh, being known and respected enough in the community for the support I get. I won't have that support, say, if I go into uh, our next city, Riviera Beach, or down to Delray or something like that. So my my philosophy would be to identify and to give them uh, our game plan. So on to your point about the intellectual property, that's something we're building out now. Like how do we create our manifesto, our game plan, so that when we deliver it, um, we have something that we're able to get out that, 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 that's a part of our, our growth and development going forward. So it's definitely something I could use your uh, advice on. You seem to, to, to know a lot about that and I'm, I'm open to learn, man. I told you before we started, we are going to be neighbors. We we get out of here, man, next month. Um, All right. Next month, I cannot wait. You'll be awesome. getting, you know, calls. Because I, I want to see, you know, when things get back to normal. Yeah. I, I want to see because, I mean, it's all good in the hood. Um, yeah. Have those meetings gone to Zoom? And I say that because I'm part of a, a group called Dads. And yeah. Yeah. As here in Seattle, everybody from ex-Seahawks, um, ex-dealers, people sometimes, because they also work inside the jails 
inside yeah. alternative schools. But yeah. they had people who come straight out of prison, you know, 10, yeah. 20 years. First stop is yep. dads. And now everything yeah. is on Zoom, which at least for me, it does more than church because I've done yeah. church professionally. I've written a yeah. book on the entertainment industry and uh, in movies and in the church, the gospel. And let me yeah. just say, the church is hurt. So I, yeah. I'd rather be exactly. with, you know, yep. the people yep. and us men, we can talk like men and right. not be, you know, have a hashtag. Exactly. Because we don't have it all. Yep. The exactly. So You're absolutely have you done right. the Zoom yet? Yeah, yeah, we have done Zoom. You know, that's the way our mentoring has gone, um, you know, since all the social distancing um, message came about. So that that's our primary way. And you hit a good point, man, especially touching on, like, the ex-felons and things that come out and get to be a part of those groups. Like, those are the kind of guest speakers I enjoy bringing around my young men the most. I had this one fellow, uh, Talmadge, he first went to prison when he was about uh, 16, and he spent 25, 27 years in prison. And he got out because they uh, did this, you know, the unfair youth sentencing guide law, guidelines. And uh, he's just a, a success story. He's gotten out. He works for the county now. But, man, the look in these young people's eyes when they see someone who's came from where they'd likely end up if they don't make the right decisions is, is beyond powerful, man. So I want to touch on that because you, uh, you mentioned it, but um, yeah, man, zoom, zoom has been a, a great for us, man, because we got to keep these guys engaged and we even have to go do like in-person visits. One thing that I feel like is often forgot with people, they forget, they like the, the hood operates by a different set of rules normally. You know what I'm saying? But somehow we think because this virus and this pandemic came about that, oh, we're all on the same page. Everybody's self-isolating. The hood's on. No, these kids are still in situations where it's life as normal. Only thing, can't nobody work or do what they need to do to, to keep food on the table. And, and another thing, you know, it's easy to self-isolate at home when you live in an environment you want to be in. But these kids are, are being forced to stay in situations where, you know, the roaches and, and rodents and, and, and just the dilapidation of the, their living situations. So, you know, we're, we're, we, we do Zoom where possible, but we're, we're not afraid to go in and, and to meet with these guys and pull them out when needed uh, to just catch a breath of fresh air and regain perspective. And we really got to pray because we always know the summers get get hot and they, the streets get hotter and yep. now that everybody is you know forced to wear a mask oh yeah it's i mean and, and the are looking the other way because they're thinking about their health and everything yep. you know it's it, it's going to be a prayerful summer and i i'm from a, a school where protect yourself folks but yeah. you know we also have to understand that as us we can be right in a neighborhood and people exactly start, gun us down so I really mean protect yourself because yeah. you know we, we that's what we have to do to stay around and stay around for our families um, and I'm sure yeah. I'll raise my kids until I can see you know great great grandchildren Oh, yeah. And I'm really considering, um, you know, becoming a, a concealed carrier. You know, I was thinking about it uh, yesterday. You know, I, I kind of mentioned before we got onto this, I was doing a kind of a, a two year uh, anniversary uh, news story on the loss of one of the young men uh, that I had worked with. You know, and the reality is, you know, I'm exposed. You know, there's the same person that killed that young man 
I probably jog by every morning on my morning jog through the neighborhood, you know? So when, when you talk about fighting for justice uh, in communities that have been riddled by injustice for so long, it's a dangerous thing. And, you know, and I really had to sit down and, and, and think about that the other day, man. Like it's, it's, you're operating in a situation where it's not black and white. There's so much gray, man. And um, so I began asking myself that question, man, like, I probably really should take take that that seriously, man, because you you really just never know, you know. You really just never know. Especially with what you do, and I'm gonna my, my next words are, are I'm gonna carefully do it. So it, if my wife hears this, she won't be like, "Why did you say that on air?" Yeah, I've worked even for um, CPS, and I was an investigator. Yeah. I would go investigate Skinhead, the Klan, and the joke was, mm -hmm. why do we send our only black investigator in Lubbock, Texas, of all places, to wow. do that? Because they knew yeah. what they were doing. Don't think, when I see guns right. on the walls and I'm hearing other investigators get beat up, that I'm not right. protecting myself. Um, right. I'm, I'm, you know, I was concealed carry, and I, and I agree with concealed carry all the way. I'm in Washington State. I have yeah. open carry here. <laughs> I have never been pulled over by the police. I yeah. bothered by the police. Yeah. Uh, if anything, we have great conversations where I'm at because yep. of where I'm at. But I know when I go down south, it's, it's yeah. two fronts sometimes. Yeah. And and you have to protect yourself and and, and that. And and this, that's how I'm gonna segue over to Mother Africa. I need yeah. to tell the people because if you saw my room, you see oh, the flags and everything. But Africa, we have investment there. We brought yeah. 30 people last year through a YouTube client of mine, and we changed lives. I didn't know we were going to change yeah. lives until I see people crying, saying, but yeah. I'm here. And I'm like, yeah. wow, we just changed lives. So talk yeah. about Africa and your experience. <laughs> oh, my gosh, bro. So, like... I get there, man, and it's so surreal. Like you, like you, I feel like we can underestimate that as a as as Black Americans here. You you get there, and I'm like, man, like this is the motherland. Like they, like this is it, and the people there were, were just so like just welcoming. It's as if I was like from there, you know. That's the like it was welcome home. That was the greeting I got. Welcome home, brother. And they were just so joyous, man, and just so happy to see you. And uh, that that was like the that was the biggest thing to me was just that that brotherhood, that that kindredness. And then, man, the beauty, the beauty. We were driving through Kenya, man, and, and just the 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 greenness, the lushness to 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 see monkeys and, and trees and fruits and it, it it was like man I can't even like my body like I feel like I'm there when I'm describing it man just being enraptured in it and it, it was just a different world man it, it it really was and it was something that I always keep with me in my heart and I definitely want to go back and if I could go back I definitely want to go to West Africa this time you know. But like, man, I feel like it's a shame. I don't know if there is or isn't a program that exists right now where people can make that expedition over, man. But it definitely was life changing to me, man. Like, like I definitely feel like I'm a part of something larger uh, than the than the than the bubble we grow up so often in here. 
like like they say, Karibu Kenya. You you see, I still have I keep my Kenya uh band on me. I love but, that. Um, Kenya versus Uganda. Which one did you prefer? This is gonna start some comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Which one? All right. Heard why? I would say I would say Kenya. Just be. I don't know if it was because of the places that we went and like just the region, but um, like we're just at some retreat center there that just was just beautiful, man, beautiful, and um, but the I, I would say the people in Uganda, like I felt I felt more just a more closeness there. But you know, in Kenya, we probably didn't spend as much time with people there as I would have liked because we were heading into this uh, retreat center. But as far as like, if I could like go back to either one again, I'd probably say Kenya. Okay, now did you go to um, Mombasa or were you, wh where were you in Kenya? Uh, I'm not sure where I was in Kenya. I know I think I was in Entebbe uh, in Uganda, if I'm getting that right. Um, cause it's probably around seven years ago, six or seven years ago, but, um, I'm, I, I, I'm, I can't recall where exactly. I know it was close to the border, probably two or three hours from the border. Cause we were close to the, you know, border cities. Okay. And, and, and see that, that is, I got a trip for you coming up, yeah. um, you know, when they open up borders and they, they yeah. have to make Americans quarantine, whenever that we get to that point. Yeah, yeah. Because people, you know, I, I've been to 16 plus countries and people say, wow. are you a, a missionary? I say, no, I've never gone as a missionary, but we do his work everywhere we go in theory. Now, I was a young man yeah. traveling, so I was a heathen. Yeah. yeah. We're always, you know, giving now because right. life is focused. Right. But, um, I got some, some things because I think that when I talk to folks who've done missionary work where they see the beauty, they didn't see the opportunity always for the business. And what yeah, we do here true. can be done there. And I go to the nitty gritty. I go to the hood. Yeah. When I'm in, yeah. everywhere I go, I got to go to the hood. Yeah, yeah. What it is. I got to go with you then. <laughs> and you know I got to go with you. Tickets right now are so cheap where we were looking at going to Cameroon because again my wife is from there and we yeah. were gonna get there for um it was two thousand or under two thousand for four tickets where the last time we went it was eight thousand wow. dollars that we paid you know for these are coach tickets people wow so two thousand for four tickets yeah <laughs> yeah wow. I had the Africa round trip from San Francisco to it was South Africa, and I stopped in London. My best record was $550. Now, that was 15 years ago. But <laughs> you can Goodness. find those deals if you know where you're to look and if, you know, you're ready to go. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Yeah. I can imagine those kind of prices. And you said from San Francisco? San Francisco. <laughs> stopped in London for um, a week or so. Stayed with a friend, and then my, you know I just delayed you know my 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 trip. Then went to South yeah, Africa and I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. This, 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 this is it right here. I don't have no money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But when I got to Africa, I had money. <laughs> right, right. You know, all you need is to be rich out there. All you need is three thousand a month, and you are well off. And I had yeah. a thousand, two thousand, and I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm winning. So yeah, 
So that's that's that. How is Haiti? I can't wait to go to Haiti. Once we move to Florida, I'm trying yeah. to Yeah. I'm telling you, man, like that Haiti surprised me, man, like the most because like, you know, everything I thought I knew about Haiti was just like what you see on TV or, or feed the children commercial, like extreme poverty and things like that. And and it was that. There there was a lot of that. Uh cuz we went after the uh earthquake but man, when I tell you it is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been, like I was not expecting the hills, uh, the mountainous regions, uh, the greenness, the lushness of the area. It's just so, it's just mountainous, man. And, uh, and the people, uh, <laughs> the funniest thing was like, when I, I always get, uh, I always, people always ask if I'm Haitian, right? And so I'm always like, my, my dad isn't, you know, my mom isn't. But I'm like, Mom, you sure you know who my dad is? Like, <laughs> so I'm over there in Haiti and all the kids, you know, they'll come, you know, I'm playing with the kids and stuff. And then I talk and they just bust out laughing. Like they couldn't conceptualize that someone that looked like them couldn't speak the language. So that, that was, the, <laughs> it was, I mean, they, they blasted me for that, man. But uh, it was one of the most beautiful times of my life, man. And like, I, I still got some of the pictures from that trip. Man, like it's beautiful, and like, and next time, and even the beaches, man. Next time I like go to any place, I don't want to go on a mission trip. I just want to go as a citizen to really enjoy those places, man. Because I, I saw some things I would have liked to do, but I couldn't at the time. And like the, their beaches, man. Like you don't hear about the beach in Haiti, but it's a thing, and it's beautiful. <laughs> and and. and- my French sucks, and so, and I know my Creole is non-existent, right? Yeah. And so, did you find that there was a language barrier while you were there? Like, did you always need an interpreter? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All the time. The only words I could say was, uh, ça passe, <laughs> um, way bien, uh, Jesus loves you. Like that is it, you know. I, I, you know, I kept it simple, and uh, I just make sure anything I need to say, I have my guy right there with me. But that was hard. That was hard because I'm just so used to just just talking. You know, you take for granted that language barrier until you're in that situation. Yeah, and it's not a bad thing because you know you 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 got by and you survived. And I want more right. Americans to understand you will survive not knowing right. That- you know, you, you need to know the food and you need to know, you know, Haitians like their pickles and you better get yeah. the back of the refrigerator because oh, that's yeah. the one that's going to be the spiciest. Um, <laughs> you know, but no. I, Ooh, and, and one more lesson I got, right, when I was in Africa, right? Uh-huh. I go over there and we're eating uh, at this lady's house. And I like, she literally, the chicken was out back. She went out back, grabbed it, brought it in, cut it up, cut I ain't never had my chicken like that before, right? <laughs> and another thing I know, when you eating over there, you got to eat it all. Or it's to the fence, to the host. You know, so I'm there like, oh, I got my full. I'm, I'm ready to go. And uh, <laughs> my friend comes over and explains the situation. I'm like, oh, I got to finish this. And I, it was the longest meal of my life, but I definitely learned something. <laughs> You do have to do that, but let me say, there's a warning, and I'm a, I'm a foodie, right? I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. Um, and people say, really? I say, yeah, I, I like <laughs> Yeah. I got E. coli um, on one of my trips. 
Oh, wow. It was because I'm sitting, you know, near the beach. I'm just living my best life. You couldn't tell me yeah. I'm not from Cameroon right now. And a friend yeah. who's a YouTuber, he was like, hey, and I'm with my family. And he's yeah. in our driver. Um, and he's like, hey, Kellen, you eat snails? I'm thinking I'm Andrew Zimmerman. I'm like, yeah, I eat snails. <laughs> I ain't never had snails in my life. I don't know where these snails came from, but they're on a barbecue. Uh right yeah they yeah look like snails they look like it could have been alligator which i like alligator my wife and i went to Gram. we went to grambling uh yeah i like alligator i'm like yeah my wife said uh-uh i don't want no snails i yeah everything is good a few days later i tell my father-in-law my mother-in-law yeah i had snails they said what snails we don't even eat that and my my father-in-law had possum ready for me he was like I'm yeah you never had it. I think it was yeah. one. I got <laughs> lie. I know off the snails because I was the yeah. only one to eat it, and I had everything uh, except death bleeding from all ends. So uh, I don't want to eat something, folks. Just yeah. people, I'm Ital, or you know, I'm a gotcha. vegetarian. But I, gotcha. I I recovered and ate snails here in the states at a camp. Yeah. Uh, and snails are all good. You just gotta get yeah. fine. Has to, you know. Oh man, <laughs> I don't know, bro. <laughs> you lost me at possum and the snails, man. <laughs> I really think oh. I'm on, I'm on a, a, a TV set, like you know, I, I'll go have. Yeah. Ostrich. I remember first time having ostrich. My wife wouldn't go with me. It was a yeah. Like, I don't. Yeah. Know. I said I need to have some ostrich. So, yeah. You know, you just explore, but that's me. Yeah. To be, you know. I, I like that mentality, though. Yeah. I like that mentality. <laughs> yeah. So, no, with that, I want to ask you the question I ask every guest, but I have to rephrase it for you because y your whole life of what you're doing is the community. And what I ask yeah. every guest is, what is their community uh, give back that they're doing? And we know that right now. Yeah, yeah. What do want to do in the future? And you've told us some of that, but is there anything yeah. else that you want to do in the future for the community? Uh, if there's one thing I could do for the community, I want to create a model uh, that, that, that can enlist people who never thought that they could have a part in making a difference. I want to give them the model, the example, and the resources they need to be the change they want to see in their community. Uh, I, want, I want people to really stop looking to outsiders to, to come into our communities and into our situations to, to make a change when we have all the incentive that we need, when we have all the life experience that we need to really be the change on that level. So if I could give nothing else to my community, I think that example, um, that, that example would be enough, man, because that, that's what fires me up. And to see even the young men that I work with beginning to take hold, I didn't have an image for what I'm doing now. And now they have that image and seeing how they adapt to it has been amazing. So I just imagine what that could look like on a wider scale. Well, with that, you guys, I don't want to give you a game overload. I'm going to talk with Ricky for a few minutes after this. And I want to make sure that you guys like, share, subscribe, and send this to somebody who needs to be inspired in times like these. They can create the change that Ricky does. And feel free if you really, you know, say, I want to learn more. 
hit Ricky up. His information yes. for the organization will be in the description box. And maybe you are the next, you know, intern, volunteer. Maybe right. you're the next paid worker. You know, yeah. things are only yeah. going to go up. So, Ricky, I thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Blessings, y'all. <laughs>Thanks for getting in the game and listening to the Diversified Game Podcast with Kellen, the number one show pairing entrepreneurship with diverse and inclusive perspectives like wine and cheese, bagel and locks, fish and grits. Be sure to visit diversifiedgame.com for all the good stuff. Join in the conversation and discover more content.